Well, good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading today is from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and we'll be reading chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, if you'll join me. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. morning. How's everyone doing? Great. Um, When I meet new people, whether that's at church or at work, uh, and I tell, I introduce myself as like, hey, my name is Young Jay, I'm from Colorado. Then us- I usually meet two types of people. Someone that have visited Colorado and want to move there, have not visited Colorado, but heard great things about Colorado, so they want to move there. But because everyone moving to Colorado, like the house market is like through the roof, like do not move there, so one day I can go back and buy a house without selling an arm and a leg. Especially if you're from California, like stay away, stay in California. <laughs> But um, after high school, um, I went to a college that was local to like, where I grew up. So I stayed with my parents and went to a, a college in Colorado Springs. Three years later, uh, my brother graduated college, and then he went up to Boulder, which is about two hours-ish uh, from Colorado. And during his first semester uh, of college, I was annoyed and just like, really frustrated the whole time, not because he was away, but because of my mom. So my mom would complain to me all the time, your brother never calls, like I don't know what he's doing, like I don't know if he's eating, I don't know if he's eating breakfast. Like I always had to assure her, like the millions of money that you're paying for him to be there, like he's probably skipping breakfast because he's not waking up early enough. Uh, But my mom would bother me like all the time about my brother not calling. Then in the same way that my mom longed to talk and to see my brother, Paul also had the same longing and affection towards the Thessalonian church. Uh, we're continuing on our series uh, in First, First Thessalonians today. Today is actually our seventh message uh, in this small book that we have. Uh, it really, it's only five chapters. But before we dive into today's message, uh, here's a quick recap of the context of the book. Uh, Paul visited the Thessalonians uh, towards the end of his second mission, uh, missionary journey with Silas. Over the course of three weeks, Paul lived, uh, ministered, preached, and just lived life uh, with them. Even though he didn't spend too much time uh, with them, they built deep affection for one another before Paul was driven out of uh, his adversaries that did not want him there uh, for the gospel that he was preaching. So after his, uh, his departure, Paul was concerned uh, for the new believers in Thessalonica, so he sent Timothy uh, to check up on them to see how they were doing. And as discussed for several weeks now, Timothy came back to report that the community, for the most part, was doing very well. They were growing, standing firm in the faith. But on the flip side, the Thessalonian churches were facing persecution from outside, uh, from, the, from the outside and struggling with false teachings regarding specifically the return of Christ. Uh, Vince will ter- uh, touch more about that, uh, more about the false teaching next week. Uh, but the combination between persecution that they were facing and the false teaching uh, brings us to, to today's passage in uh, verse 9 through 12, where Paul urges the Thessalonian church to continue pressing on with the uh, love to each other. So today's uh, big idea is this. Gospel-centered love taught by God is sacrificial, intentional, 
and transformational. And we'll hit that as we go on. Uh, but before we move on, uh, before we dive in, uh, let's pray. God, you are good. You are graceful. You are merciful. You are the beginning and the end. You're the Alpha and the Omega. Your name is above all names. You deserve all the praise. God, I pray that as we today as we talk about um, how we can love each other, how we can uh, intentionally, transformationally, and sacrificially love one another as we receive your love uh, uh, that you've done on our behalf. God, I pray that uh, your spirit will be here with us today and that you will be uh, in our hearts and that as we grow and as we uh, discuss uh, through the chapter uh, that we can give you uh, praise and worship. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Normally, I would go verse by verse in a numerical order, uh, but today let's hit verse 11 uh, through 12. Then we'll go, back, uh, we'll go back to verse 9 and 10 uh, towards the end. So let's go to verse 11 and 12. Verse chapter 4. It says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So these two verses are pretty straightforward. Paul is teaching that the Christians at the Thessalonica uh, to mind your own business, to work hard so that we can walk accordingly to uh, appropriately in front of believers. So today's message is actually pretty easy. So work hard, don't be lazy, love one another. So Grant, if you want to come forward, then we'll finish up. <laughs> but um, when you read through different uh, scholars and commentaries, uh, basically there are two schools of thoughts as to why uh, the Paul felt the urge to... Uh, uh, to remind the Thessalonians uh, to work hard. Uh, the first thought is that I mentioned earlier that this church was dealing with false teachings. Uh, more specifically, they thought the return of the Christ was imminent. So because of that, so they ditched all normal daily activities and responsibility and simply just waited while bumming off of other Christians. Uh, they chose not to work for a living and they were financially dependent on other believers. So, but when the prediction about Jesus' imminent return failed to be uh, fulfilled, they were left disappointed and discouraged. In Thessalonica, many believers were under persecution because of their faith in Christ, and under the influence of false prophets, they had oriented their entire life around the hope of the immediate return of Christ. Of course, that didn't happen, so as the months went on, nothing changed. False prophets convinced some of the Christians that they no longer needed to support themselves or engage in normal godly activities, their attitude was, well, why bother with these kind of things if Jesus was going to come uh, very soon? Second school of thought has to do with the social and economic side of uh, the Thessalonica, specifically the system of patronage. Uh, patron was a person with positional power, talent, wealth, and um, higher social status. Clients were essentially their public entourage to publicly show them support and importance of um, the patron that they were supporting. So they would pay their patrons special attentions and perform special duties in return. For a client, having the right relationship with a particular patron would open up political, legal, and financial opportunities to gain from them. This was a way of avoiding having a real job uh, because a personal patron would help people of a lower status uh, through gifts of money, invitations to dinner, in exchange for public support. So they would support these people and they would get something in return. As I was reading through this, like it really reminded me of like for those that are in the military, like when you have a DV come through, then you just do the, all the dog and pony show, right? Like you clean up your office, like as if it's never dirty, right? You start mowing the lawn as if your lawns are clean. That's essentially what, we're, what they were doing is that they were supporting people that had power and uh, that they can gain from. The relationship between patron and his or client had three characteristics. 
First place, the patron and client relationship implied an interchange of goods and service uh, that we mentioned. Secondly, the bond between patron and client was personal and lasted for indefinite period of time. Finally, the relationship was asymmetric in the sense that the patron and the client were not of equal social status uh, and different types of goods and services were exchanged between them. So honor was name of the game. So more often the clients showed up to give patron public support, the more important uh, they seemed to, be, uh, seemed to appear to everybody else. Additionally, this relationship determined the distribution of political power. So to maintain their rights as citizens, they would seek protections from uh, powerful men. Either way, some Christians in the Thessalonica church neglected their responsibilities and they became financial burden to others. And more than this, laziness of some in the church damaged the credibility of the church uh, in the eyes of unbelievers as they were trying to pursue and spread the gospel. Paul is trying to replace a system of climbing a social ladder with a gospel community. He's trying to replace the patronage system, a system based on receiving without working, a system based on latching onto others uh, to gain something that's per that can personally benefit them. So with a community, so he's trying to replace that with a community of sacrifice and service to others. Can we insert the next picture? So this is a picture of my wife, uh, Chanel, and uh, our firstborn, Aiden. So if you have kids, uh, wives, I'll tell you, your husband probably has a picture very similar to this. He may, may not have shown you, but he probably showed his buddies at work. But um, this was Aiden. Uh, he was about, I think, about six to seven weeks. Uh, so this was our firstborn, so we had zero idea what we were doing. And obviously, Chanel was getting zero sleep, uh, as you can tell from the picture. For a brand new baby to flourish and grow, grow the parents have to sacrifice and give. In, or, in other words, in order for the baby to live, the parents have to die. The parents have to say, my life for yours, and sacrifice for the sake of baby's growth. We see this in the way that Jesus loves us, where when we examine Jesus' love uh, for us, we see that he's, he sacrificed specifically power and control. Uh, next slide. So this picture that I stole from a book that we're reading in our MC, uh, the book is called J-Curve. Uh, it talks about the way we can live our lives, um, looking at the way Jesus uh, died and sacrificed and resurrected, and the way we can mimic that in our life. And specifically, when you look at the descent of love and how Jesus showed his love uh, for us, he lost power and control. So up uh, at the top of the page, you see heaven, uh, where God was in the form of God. Uh, then he found in human form uh, as he came onto earth to Bethlehem. Then ultimately that led him to the Calvary where he died on the cross. So you see that as he moves from top to bottom, that he's losing power and control. He had power as God, and as, uh, as he took on the form of humanity and uh, also deity, he came onto earth, and then as he walked towards the Calvary, he lost power and control. And, but as we move forward, you can see uh, of how Jesus expressed his love for us and ultimately dying on the cross was the ultimate expression of love. So commitment and sacrifice in order to love opens up where we may lose power and control, whereas if we stay distant and detached, then we only love when it's convenient for us. When we lower ourselves in the same way Jesus lowered himself, all the way down to the cross, is when we create a gospel community. Not only did Jesus sacrifice his place in heaven, but he also intentionally came down to where we live. Which brings us to our second point, which is gospel-centered love taught by God is intentional. The word, the word love is a word that is deep and rich, rich in meaning, but maybe even complicated at times. 
But on the other hand, little kids are expected to know the definition of love. I tell my three-year-old, I love you. He says it back. Maybe he means it. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. I'm not sure. But in return, we do that. And um, I found a uh, pretty old um, article that had like a contest for little kids. Essentially, it was a contest for little kids to submit like, hey, what, is, what do you think love is? Like, what is your definition of love? Uh, to little kids, and they responded, and they picked uh, what, what, which one was deemed, I guess, the one that they liked the most, essentially. So I'll read some of the quotes, and at the end, then I'll read what won the contest. Uh, so w- one child said, when my, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his, got, his hands has arthritis too. That's love. Second quote by another child was, love is when my mommy takes cof- makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. (laughs) Another one is, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. (laughs) Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him all along. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go buy new ones. (laughs) Love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. The, and the winner, the final winner, was a four-year-old uh, whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who recently lost his wife. So upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into uh, the gentleman's yard and climbed onto his lap and just sat there. And then he came back. And then his mother asked him, hey, like, what did you say? And he says, nothing. I just helped him cry. Love is something anyone can describe, even little kids. But in verse 9 specifically, uh, that the, the passage that we read today, Paul specifically says they were taught by God. They were taught by God to love one another. So in the same way that little kids can describe love, God has also described love for us in the way that we should love. Can we show 1 John, please? So when you read 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, I won't read the whole verse, it's on the screen, but it says, love is from God, God is love, manifested among us, and that God sent his only son into the world. So what does it mean that God is love? Love is an attribute of God. Love is a core aspect of God's character, his person. God's love is in no sense in conflict with his holiness, righteousness, justice, or even his wrath. All of God's attributes are in perfect harmony. God sending his son was intentional. Everything God does is intentional with the purpose of expressing his love for us. Today is Palm Sunday where we celebrate and remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, and a week later, Jesus demonstrated the greatest expression of uh, love by dying on the cross on our behalf. But before crucifixion, he intentionally sat down with his disciples during the Last Supper and taught them how to love by washing their feet. John chapter 13 is where you find this story. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and as he washed their feet, in verse 34, uh, he tells them, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Walking in sandals during that time in the first century made it imperative that the feet uh, feet has to be washed uh, before they eat. When Jesus rose from the Last Supper and he began to wash the disciples' feet, he was doing the work of the lowest of servants. So raise your hand if you think your feet is attractive. Nobody, right? I see a couple hands. Uh, so we'll take a picture. Everybody get your iPhone out. We'll airdrop. We'll take a vote. We have a family membership coming up. 
Just kidding, don't take a picture. No one wants to see that. We have kids in here. I have to eat lunch after this. No one wants to see your feet. But feet are not something most of us will proudly say that that's our best attribute. Very rarely people brag about their feet. For the human heart, for us, we don't tend to love the things that we are not attracted to, let alone have the desires to serve or want to possess something unattractive. But our culture equates love with our attractions. Naturally, our hearts are drawn to things and people that are attracted to us. But at the same time, we are needy people. We have a lot of needs. We need power. We need love, approval, comfort, control, fill in the blank. And when we send someone who can fulfill those needs, who is capable and competent and willing to meet our desires, then we seek out after them. And then we call that love. In the same way God is intentional, we are also intentional, but for different reasons. In our culture, when we say, I love you, sometimes what we mean is, I love being around you. I love the way you make me feel. You make me feel safe, special, comfortable, loved. We love ourselves by using people. At times, the way love is expressed in our culture is not really love, but you could almost say that it's hunger that we're fulfilling our hunger. So if the first mistake is attraction-driven love, then second mistake is the thought of serving people out of sense of duty. At times, we think to ourselves, well, love is service. Love is when we serve people. So we, we serve without an engagement from the heart. We serve without gospel intentions. When we are intentional, when we are intentionally doing something, then if the source of our heart is our if the source of our service is our heart and not from a sense of duty, then we serve others with a goal in mind. Intentional, intentionality leads us to a goal or an outcome that we want to see from our service. Yes, I understand that there are times in a love relationship we have to meet the needs of other people even when we don't feel like it. I do this every morning when Alec wakes up at 5 in the morning. It is completely out of sense of duty, uh, not from the heart. But serving out of duty without an engagement from the heart isn't completely aligned with the gospel. Ultimately, if our service or our sacrifice is not intentional, then it doesn't complete our duty to love. It doesn't complete our duty to love because at some point, we have to care about the effect of our service to that person's life. We don't serve for the sake of serving, but we commit to each other's life because we have a goal for them. We invest into each other for their good. In the same way, parents die to themselves to serve the baby, not only because there is a need, but because there is a need for the baby's growth and development and their flourishment. We commit to each other by walking alongside one another for their good and for their flourishment, that we have a goal in mind, the way we want to affect that person's life through service, not necessarily just serving them out of service. Several years ago, back at my home church in Colorado, we had a family whose 12-year-old uh, daughter passed away from a car accident on a Saturday night. So then less than 12 hours later, 12 hours after the accident, uh, we had our normal scheduled service uh, that Sunday morning. But in that particular Sunday, service ended early than, uh, than normal, and the entire church went to that family's house to cry and mourn together. And for the next several days, the entire church, as a family, spent the evening at their house, 
just to spend time with them and just to walk with them during their darkest hours. We live in a culture where when bad things happen, people shy away. But gospel calls us to come together in the valley. When Jesus washed Peter's feet, Peter initially said, I don't want you to wash my feet. Then Jesus responded by saying, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Here, the foot washing symbolizes the washing necessary for the forgiveness of sin in anticipation of Jesus' death for his people by which all sins are washed away. Jesus wasn't only washing their feet out of sense of duty. He wasn't just washing their feet just to tell them, like, hey, go wash other people's feet, but with the goal of how this act would affect their lives. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, I'm not just washing your feet, but I want to see you clean. I want to see you flourish, bright, joy, and in glory. Jesus didn't die on the cross out of sense of duty, but he died on the cross to have an effect on our lives as our rescuing king. He had a vision, a goal of how his service would affect the people that he served. In Hebrews 12 and Isaiah 53, we have the verses on, uh, up top. Hebrews 12 too says, uh, I won't read the whole verse, uh, but for the joy set before him as he endured the cross. Isaiah 53, 11, as he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. In other words, Jesus had a vision of what will be after his death on the cross. He was excited about the effect his service would have on our lives. He had joy set before him as he endured the cross, and he was satisfied. He knew it would be a painful death, but he had joy set before him and was satisfied for what is and was to come for our lives. Jesus didn't give his life unintentionally, without a goal, without a plan. But he intentionally gave himself to the Father's plan of salvation for our good and for our flourishment. Jesus had a vision. He had a goal for our lives through his death on the cross. In the same manner, when we serve people, it's not about the physical act of service. It's not about doing something. But we desire to walk into someone else's valley and walk out together. We help each other fight through stagnation so that we can grow, develop, and mature. We love people out of their sorrow to bring in joy and peace. When we approach service the same way that Jesus served us for the good and flourishment of others, then our hearts can't help but to be engaged. You care about where they are going. Ultimately, you care about what they will be. You care about their flourishment beyond the capacity of the physical act of service that you're committing. This is intentional love. When the preaching calendar came out a few months ago and there were blocks open for us to uh, see where we can preach, um, I signed up and then about three, four weeks ago I started preparing a little bit as I was reading. And I had a really, really difficult time preparing for like specifically this message. Uh, and the entirety of as I was preparing, I had a lot of excuses to myself on why I was having such a hard time preparing for this. But it wasn't until I was reflecting through the story of how Jesus washed their feet is when I realized why um, I was having such a hard time. In John chapter 13, verse 5 and verse 11, uh, Jesus washed all of his disciples' feet, if you read it. It says, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that wrapped around them. Then you go to verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So as he was, uh, uh, Jesus washed the uh, disciples' feet, he washed all 12 of the disciples. It wasn't just the 11 and left out Judas. 
every single disciple at the table to include Judas. Judas, the man that had everything lined up to betray the, uh, the someone that he spent about three and a half years with. They traveled together, ate together, worked together, lived together, laughed together, cried together. As Jesus was washing Judas's feet, he knew. He knew that the feet that he was washing was going to walk away from him and ultimately lead him to his death. Judas betrayed Jesus and still had his feet washed. But Judas is not the only one that received this grace. Not only did Jesus wash Judas' feet, but he also washed my feet. As I was reflecting through the story and as I was preparing for this, I recognized Jesus washed Judas' feet, but forgot that he washed my feet too. I was able to see Judas's betrayal to Jesus, but I forgot about my betrayal. As I was getting ready for this, the reason why I had a hard time was because I wasn't living out the passage. Ultimately, I forgot that I am Judas. I had a hard time preparing for this message, uh, preparing for today, not because it's a simple lesson of don't be lazy and love each other, not only because it's only four verses, but because I don't live out the passage. I don't love well. I serve what is, what is attractive to me, and I call that love. If I'm being honest and being transparent with you guys, instead of looking for people that need friendship, I purposely seek out people that I like. Instead of inviting someone who desires community, I desire to only invite the people that I think I'm going to get along with into my MC. Instead of looking for opportunities to serve, I desire to spend time with people that just makes me feel comfortable. Instead of building relationships out of love at work, I desire to connect with people that have rank, position, and power that I can professionally benefit from. Those are my motives and the desires when I am loving people. I don't always follow my desires, but certainly that is what's in my heart. Maybe, just maybe, this is you as well. We forget that we are Judas. We forget that we are also a recipient of grace and love that we don't deserve. We come here every Sunday, we read the Bible, we pray, we do all the Christian-y things, we go to all the Bible studies, but our pride and our stubborn heart and our heart has fogged up the giant mirror that's in front of us, and we can't clearly see what's in the mirror. As we read through the Bible, we can't help but to think, man, I wish this verse, that person needs to hear that. This message, this passage, so-and-so needs to learn that. When we read the Bible and when we give worship, there should be a giant mirror in front of us so that we can see the need of our, of our lives. If Jesus loves the way we love people, then quite frankly, none of us would be part of God's family. But the good news is that the blood of Jesus Christ washed away all of our sins, whatever guilt, shame, embarrassment, 
baggage that you're carrying, Jesus washed away all our dirt on our behalf. Because of his blood, not only are we forgiven, but we have been adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. So far, we talked about sacrifice and being intentional. We talked about what it means to sacrifice and dying to, our, to ourselves to love one another in the same way that parents die to themselves for the baby. Then the next question is this, that we have to answer, is how do we express this love? How do we give this love to our neighbors? How do we give love that is driven out of the center core of the gospel? How can we love in the way that Jesus loved Judas that night? How can we love the way that Jesus washed your feet? How do we wash one another's feet? In my last assignment, when I was uh, in Clovis, New Mexico, I was in a small office. It was about maybe 10 of us. So because it was a small office and we were super busy, we got pretty close, uh, pretty, we got to know each other pretty well, uh, to say the least. Um, particularly, anytime uh, I had a senior NCO that I worked with, and anytime we had a new person PCS in into the shop, we would obviously you know, get to know each other, and hey, we do this and this and this, and this is our calendar, da da da, da. But one of the things that um, this, uh, Sergeant Camp, uh, Paul Camp, would share with the inbound new person, specifically about me, would be say, hey, make sure he does not skip lunch. Make sure he is fed, because once he gets hangry, nothing, is, nothing good comes out of his mouth, no efficient, effective things happen at work. Make sure he's not hungry. Make sure he's not empty. We need to make sure he eats lunch. Um, if we're running empty, then we cannot invest. If we're, if we're not full of God's love, then we can't love in the way that Jesus calls us to love because our tank is empty. In, o- in other words, without exper- experiencing the love of our Father, we will continue to search for a profitable relationship because we're empty. If we don't experience the Father's love and we're not being filled with God's love, then we will continue to reap, we will continue to search for a relationship that will fulfill us. We use people and relationships to be full because we're running empty. Earlier, we talked about desire, need, hunger, and these are not bad things. It's not bad for us to have needs and desires. We are, desire, we are designed to have desires, needs, and hunger. Specifically, we are built to have our desires, needs met. But the problem is not the desires themselves, but the things that we fulfill our desires with. The love of the gospel is the only thing that can keep us satisfied. It will only, that's the only thing that will keep us satisfied and filled. Jesus' love is ultimately what keeps us full. Last year, our MC uh, studied through the book of Psalm, and out of that million verses in Psalm, uh, there was one particular verse that kind of stood out to me. Uh, it's in Psalms 81, verse 10. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth, and I will fill it. This statement, open your mouth, and I will fill it. This statement, this promise, can only be made by someone who has a limited amount of supply. It could only be made by someone that has unlimited of, of supply and source that, that he's able to make this type of promise. God is willing and able to fill our desires and our needs, but we continue to strive after the things that people have limited. We can love. 
Like, that's certainly, like, that's not what I'm getting at. We can certainly, I have received a lot of love from people, from you guys, from my families. However, those, that is limited. We serve and worship God that specifically says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, we'll go back to our passage today. Verse 9 tells us that we have been taught by God on how to love one another. We are taught by God by experiencing his love. We are taught by God remembering Jesus on our feet. When we are taught by God and when we are experiencing his love, we look down at our feet and we can't help but to say, my Lord, my Lord, why are you touching my feet? When we have Jesus' endless stream of love in our hearts, when we have a Father who has unlimited amount of supply of love that he, we can draw from, when we accept the invitation to sit at the king's table to feast as his, daughters and, as his sons and his daughters, when we see Jesus at our feet, then we're able to form a gospel community. We're, for, we're able to form a gospel community that's, that is countercultural, but aligned with the heart of the gospel. So today's third and last point. Gospel-centered love taught by God is transformational. 67 years ago, about five U.S. missionaries attempted to bring the gospel to the Wadani tribe in Ecuador. I'm sure some of you guys have heard of this story before. The anthropologists reported that the Wadani tribe had the most violent culture ever documented. They were violent to their own, but they were also violent to the foreigners that were attempting to enter their territory. For several months, these five missionaries flew over their territory to drop off gifts to establish good, um, good relationship with them. And after making successful uh, gifts of exchanging gifts with one another for, for a couple months, on January of 1956, they finally made plans to make direct contact with the Udonian tribe. Later that day, shortly after landing in the jungle, all five missionaries were stabbed to death. Not too long after their death, some of the spouses and family members went back to that tribe. They went back to finish what their husbands started. They went back to serve the tribe and share the gospel. Through these women's love, forgiveness, and grace, a group of men that killed the missionaries accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Can we show the picture? The man on the right is Steve Saint. His dad was one of the missionaries that was murdered that day. The man that he has his arm around is, his name is Mankai, the man that killed Steve's father. Steve calls Mankai his grandfather, and Mankai considers Steve's kids as his grand, great grandkids. Mankai raised Steve in the very tribe where he killed Steve's father. Then years later, they traveled together all over the world to share their story and to share what God has done for them. Minkai passed away three years ago, and when he passed, Steve described the man that killed his father as kind, gentle, and fun-loving. How is this possible? Why is this possible? 
How is it possible for the person to tell the person that murdered their own dad, not only did they live together, not only did they travel together, but when Kai passed away, Steve described him as fun, loving, and kind. When we talk about miracles, our minds and just in our Western culture, we tend to only think about physical healing. But transformation of the heart is also a miracle. Transformation of Minkai's heart began after receiving love from the family members that came back. And the family members were able to give love to the tribe that murdered their loved ones because of the love that they received from Jesus. In the same way that God's love transformed Minkai's heart, God can transform your heart into his likeness. In the same way that God's love molds our hearts, God can transform the heart of the person that you have been praying for for years and years. Remain steadfast and keep praying because God can transform people's hearts. Love that is sacrificial, intentional, transformational is not possible without Jesus' infinite stream of love poured into our hearts. So therefore, in order for us to love, we need to have infinite stream of absolutely free, unconditional love poured into our hearts. And Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is saying that I can give you that, that I can give you that infinite stream of love. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are sovereign, that you are graceful. God, I pray that we can remember your love today. God, I pray that your love, the love that you have expressed, the love that, that you've demonstrated on our behalf on the cross can be implanted, engraved in our hearts, and then in return that we can love one another, one another as you loved us. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.